With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. It's time for our Health Hacks program. It must be Monday here at Reality Check Radio. And it's my pleasure to introduce and welcome onto the program Cliff Harvey, nutritionist. Dr. Cliff Harvey is an author, also clinician, researcher, speaker, a leader in the field of carb-appropriate clinical and sports nutrition, mind-body healthcare, and the achievement of success in health and performance. Cliff, welcome to RCR, Reality Check Radio. Great to have you on. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be on. Okay, so this is all part of our journey of finding out as much of as we can about uh, how to stay healthy. So uh, I'm really interested in this chat. Um, and I looked at some of um, your bio and this um, direction in life for you. I think you take us back to the first 15 rugby side at high school. Is that <laughs> plenty of things have started in life for people at the first 15? I know that. But um, tell us about that and, and maybe we can join a few dots and, and get us up to now before we start really talking about you know, what we, what you came here to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting genesis because I hadn't really thought too much about, you know, getting into the, the physical and health space. I was just a kid, you know, I was a kid at, at high school. Yep. Um, but I had a real passion actually for desiring, uh, sorry, designing Zen-inspired landscape gardens. So okay. I was more into yeah. bonsai and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I thought that I would go off and study. But in my second to last year, the coaches of the first 15 came to me and said, basically, you're too small to play in the first 15. If you put on a certain amount of size, you'll captain it. If you don't yeah. put on the size, wow. you won't okay. you won't play. Yeah. So yeah. as is my my sort of bent, I went off to the library. You know, that's what we did back in those days, as yeah, you remember. Yeah. Take out uh, a book or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah got, got out books on strength and conditioning and nutrition and just found myself fascinated by the human body, uh, human function. You know, it was a fascinating process for me to to get a lot stronger and to put on that size. And that set me up down this track. So I studied uh, fitness training and nutrition. I went on after that to also study naturopathy and medical herbalism. Uh, as you saw in my bio, do a little bit of post-grad work in mind-body healthcare, hmm. and then really circle back to nutrition for my master's and doctorate. Okay, I'm interested in also now you've mentioned that the 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 Zen Gardens um, at uh, at that age. How did how did that come about? Where where did that interest sort of get sparked into action into something? Yeah, I mean that was interesting too because my dad used to run marathons, which seems seems like a real non sequitur. But he used to run marathons, and in his marathon running journey, he he wanted to become more flexible, so he came across yoga. Yeah. Uh, then he realized yoga was more than you know, flexibility. And so from a very young age, probably from about three years old, I was exposed to, you know, books about yoga and Eastern philosophy. Uh, I started to to really become interested in that, you know, meditation and whatnot. And my mum was interesting because she was a devout Christian, but she fully supported my journey to basically discover whatever. So she started buying me books on Buddhism and Hinduism and all sorts of things. Uh, and through that, I, I, learned about bonsai. So I started doing bonsai and was really interested in that sort of minimalistic uh, approach to not just space, but to spirituality. 
Uh, and that sort of carried through to till today. I still have my little bonsai plants and I'm still uh, fairly minimalist in the way I live. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's what cool parents. They're, I mean, really cool parents. I mean, I, I, I couldn't have had better parents. Uh, my mum passed away, unfortunately, in 98. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it was a really interesting upbringing to have someone who was so committed to their Christian faith, yeah. but so open to all other things and basically just figured that if you were a good person, you'd end up in the right place, whether yeah. that's in the here and now or maybe in the afterlife, whatever she believed. So it was it was really nice because it was very open, pragmatic and loving. Interesting. Thanks for telling us about that. Okay, so uh, one thing that um, that I've learned along the way here, because I never really gave much thought apart from, you know, an everyday person's attitude to health, and I've had a few run-ins in, in, in over my time, but I, I think more recently have realized, talking, you know, to folks like you, that I didn't know anything really about anything, and I never thought more than just, you know, a, a visit to a doctor and a prescription and she'll be right and kind of carrying on in a particular way. Well, I've, I've modified things um, as I've brought in knowledge. But one thing that I do realize now is how freaking amazing the body is. And 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 what's laid down there is, is mind-blowing. So um, I guess I'm, I'm mentioning that because it, I'm now noticing that I wasn't the only one who, who for some reason, wasn't that curious. But once you, you become curious, you start to – see a lot more and feel a lot more things and you you're blown away by just how incredible that whole f- it is you know all living stuff is it's just a mind blowing absolutely i mean it's it's so complex and i think that's what makes it so challenging for people to get their heads around the body is complex all the interrelated systems uh we, we're not obviously just an isolated system either what how we are and how we function is dependent on our environment our psychosocial setting, the whole yeah. lot. And I think people are becoming far more aware of that now. And it's not so much, you know, as it was back in the day where if you were into health or nutrition, you were kind of weird. You know, even back when yeah. I started in the 90s, it, it was seen as pretty weird to be interested in food to the degree that I was. Whereas now, you know, everyone's snapping their meals for Instagram kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. um, but also I think that people have realized that it's not just as simple as if, if I just track along and do what everyone else is doing – and occasionally get the odd prescription from my dog, I'm going to be optimally healthy. You know, I think people are now realizing that the way we've set things up with health, with our, you know, health systems overall, and with our lifestyles is maybe not conducive to health or happiness. Okay, so where does one, okay, you're like me and you've kind of had to modify things and and it's sort of like an awakening process. Nutrition is is where it all starts, isn't it? Is that the the bottom of everything? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so in terms of foundations of health. There are other things that are equally important, but they're all bidirectional. You know, they're all interrelated and they all affect one another. So we would consider those foundations of health to be broadly nutrition, movement, stress, and sleep, right? Maybe some other environmental factors as well, but... If we can have those more or less on track, they're all going to help one another. You know, if we're less stressed, we're probably going to sleep better. If we sleep better, we've got better control over our food. Um, Vice versa, if we eat better, we're going to sleep better. You know, these things start to really cascade. And, you know, we start to get on that upward cycle of health rather than that downward cycle that a lot of us are on. 
So, you know, a big message that I talk about with people fairly frequently is take care of those foundations because otherwise it becomes overcomplicated and overcomplicated is not conducive to being able to do it day in, day out, right? Yeah. Yeah, so are we talking about um, creating longer lifespans because that's always going to be limited no matter what, or is it maximizing the day-to-day health through our entire life, whatever that might be. I'm picking that, uh, you know, the better we do it, that we do, you know, claim a a few more years. But is it quality that we're, quality of life that we're looking for? Absolutely. I mean, that's a really good question because, you know, are we talking about a health span or a lifespan? And we've had really drastic improvements in lifespan over, say, the last 50 to 100 years. And maybe that's not, going much further at the moment. There, there seems to be a plateauing in mortality, but a lot of that is because of heavy medical interventions towards the end of one's life. And a lot of the average increase in mortality is due to a far lower rate of infant and childhood mortality. Of course, yeah. But obviously, one of the keys that any of us are most interested in, or the thing that we're most interested in day to day is how we're feeling. You know, my, my colleague, um, Doctor, uh, sorry, Professor Grant Schofield, who I'm sure you know. Yeah, we've uh, had we've had Grant on twice. Yeah, well, we, you know, we, we um, did our research together. He was my PhD supervisor back in the day. Oh, cool. Yeah, and we had a really interesting discussion about some of the research we were doing, and it was almost an epiphanical moment for everyone. Grant just basically stood up and said, "At the end of the day, all of these numbers are less important than how people feel." Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's true. You know, we can talk about markers of health, measures of health, but they're always going to be an imprecise thing when we consider that the most important is how does someone feel day to day? Are they happy? Are they healthy? You know, in, in a more sort of qualitative sense. Um, and what does that mean to their life? And I think that is probably the biggest thing that's unexplored for a lot of people is, are we seeking help? Sure, we are. But is that the actual objectively desirable goal? Hmm. Or is it that health provides the platform for the life we want to be living? Yeah. But a lot of people haven't really explored what that looks like. That, it would be is... the latter, wouldn't it? It would have to be. Oh, absolutely. And and when yeah. you when you challenge people with that, of course they say, yeah, it's about the life that I want to be living. But I think we've created this weird situation in the current world where health is seen as that desirable goal in and of itself. But if, if I asked people, I did this on the weekend actually at a conference, I got the, the crowd, about 100-odd people, to, I said, if, if you could achieve this idea of health that you have in your mind right now, snap my fingers, you know, put your hand up. And I think probably about five people put their hands up. Hmm. So you've got, you know, 95% of the people wondering, actually, if I achieve this idea of health that I have, will I actually be happy? Because they're not sure of the connection there. It was only once we started discussing within this big group what health actually meant to them. You know, maybe I'll have less back pain, which will mean I can pick up my kids. You know, maybe I'll have that better quality time to do the things I really love to do. I love my job, for example, so I can be more creative and and onto it and passionate about that. It's all those types of things that are far more evocative. And I think people really need to think about that because just this abstract idea of health doesn't actually mean anything. And if people only have that, it's very hard to stick to the tactics that will become habits of health change. Yeah. Um, do you think that, um, and no one's to blame because it's just the way things are, but 
a lot of us see, you know, the world in a sort of a, kind of a mechanical way, right? Um, you know, they're, they're all machines, biological machines, but essentially machines. And, you know, you, you got to feed the machine and um, and use the machine and, and it's a machine. It's more than that, isn't it? It's, it's feelings, it's attitudes, it's um, a meaning in there somewhere. That's it's part of health too, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And that's incredibly perceptive. One thing I often talk about with students is this idea that we will typically frame our perception of hell based on almost economic models. Yeah. So it's almost like an industrial era thought pattern, right? Where you think about yourself as a locomotive chugging yeah, along, right. you've yeah, got to yeah. fuel it, and eventually it breaks down. Yeah. Even that is imprecise because we're not a locomotive. We are, if we change a bit of a mindset into a more modern one, we could almost view it as if the body is a self-healing, self-replicating machine. Yeah. So it's almost as if then we think about it more as a computer. If we have the right substrate going in or the right materials going in, the right chemicals that we can build the body from, and the software is not corrupted, then we should be able to live a very long time being very healthy. But as you've pointed out, even that is a bit imprecise because that doesn't account for feelings and you know common sense, mm. which is obviously the big problem in AI right now is that it has a common sense conundrum. Yeah. And so well, we have all of that time. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it may be insurmountable. A lot of the AI people I've spoken to have said, look, we don't know if we're ever going to get over this common sense problem. Um, but there's beauty in that too, because that's that's us as humans, right? Yeah. We have feelings, we have emotions, we have common sense, we've got all this cool stuff, which means we're not just machines. And we are, you know, the, the human animal in its psychosocial environment. It's a beautiful thing. And we can tell our biology what to do. And I know that from personal experience, I don't claim to be you know, anything special, but uh, recovering, I recovered from cancer 10 years ago. And um, I went on a very um, deliberate exercise personally to with as much intent as I could muster at the time to to order almost <laughs> like some sort of military uh, command from from you know right up the top that that my body should recover and and I felt that I it had the power to do that it knew how to do that it just had to know that that's what the owner of it was demanding and it seemed to work I recovered quickly to the point where my doctors at the time were amazed like wow, you know, we've never seen anyone recover kind of this fast and you were yeah. just Mr. Average. And I said, well, I think I know why, because I've been lying in bed for months over and over again with as much honesty to myself as possible, telling telling my body that you can do it, get it back, i got confidence, you know what to do, da-da-da. Seemed to make a difference, long story short. Yeah, and a lot of people would still say that's just wacky. Well, but I don't I think, think it is, but yeah, yeah. No, and I, I don't believe and, it is And people either. have told me that. Yeah, come on, whatever. Yeah, but I think if we look pragmatically at the research, we see that there is this very interesting emerging field, which, um, you know, a lot of it's it's a bit more foundational at the moment. It's like psychoneuroimmunology, right? Yeah. Which is looking at the connection between our psyche, our psychology, our neurophysiology, and what happens within the body. I take that a step further and talk about it in terms of psychoneurophysiology because we can't mm. separate the mind, the emotions, intention, you know, all those various things that that happen supposedly in our brain, but actually throughout our entire body and the function of the human body and vice versa. You know, we can't we can't dif differentiate the function of the human body from what ha is happening in our 
our minds, mm, exactly. our consciousness. And so, yeah, I, I think that is going to be one of the biggest emerging fields in medicine. And scientists who close themselves off to those possibilities are not scientists. Yeah. Because the scientific method is about, it's about wonder and possibility. It's about creating hypotheses and testing them. And if you've got scientists who just say, well, we shouldn't even look at that, we shouldn't test it because it sounds a bit weird, just think about how few breakthroughs we would have had if every scientist had that thought that, no, we're not going to investigate this because it sounds weird. I mean, we would be stuck in that 1920s conundrum of physics, right, where a lot of physicists were saying, we've pretty much discovered everything. Yeah. We don't need yeah. to do any research anymore. <laughs> yeah. And what came along? The quantum quantum physics. physics came along and, oh, my golly. And blew the doors off. Yeah. <laughs> because there's obviously something there. If there, if that's a thing, what you've got is you've got thoughts, which are hard to, you know, to to find coordinates for, to put in a physical, well, in the brain space, I suppose, but they, they're not actually anything that you can see as physical resulting in an actual physical effect. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the things that really started changing people's perception of that was when they were able, back in the sort of mid-20th century it started, they were able to start eliciting immune responses in laboratory animals through stimuli, which people thought, you know, the immune system is just purely autonomic. It just functions. You can't really affect it that much. It just does what it does. Uh, but they started eliciting responses by, for example, giving electric shocks to dogs and at the same time giving them an immune suppressant drug. Right. Then they'd stop giving the immune suppressant drug and just give the electric shock and the immune system would collapse. So they basically learned that response yeah. and that really changed things because then it became quite clear that more than just very basic processes like salivation in a dog could be elicited things that were considered to be deeply autonomic you know could be shifted uh, and now i think that's gone way past that where we now understand that a lot of what is going on within the mind and the emotions can have massive impacts on on the body you know even if we just look at the placebo effect while some yeah. people say it's just an artifact of statistical methods, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it's too, there is it's something too, more there. The figures, it's the percentage of that of, of its effect is too great to to it, say that, isn't it? Exactly, and you know, with any intervention, we're looking at the, I, I guess, the physical effect of the intervention itself. Plus, there's always going to be placebo effect. So, of course, we want to use things that have a placebo plus a true sort of, or you know, true and quotation marks effect um, but it also indicates at some level that power of the mind and intention and belief on what's happening within the body yeah I think um, I, I thought about the placebo I think we've talked about it with uh, in a few of these sessions before it's come up um, and it's really interesting to try and work out what is going on there and um, and it seems that I don't know I could be wrong but it's something to do with order you know so if you perceive that there's an order to something. It's like when you tidy up or you wash the car, it's like it goes better. You know, it, it's, it sort of yeah. feels like it even runs better. There's something about having things in, in a more of an ordered state or, 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 or an organized state. I don't know. That seems to, to, to make it feel better, to make it run better. So I, I, I wonder, yeah, I, I've wondered a lot about what could cause that effect, you know? Again, that's very perceptive because that does speak to, you know, some of the plausibility neurologically. Uh, for example, when people have a strong intention towards something, while some would say, you know, it's just the universe providing it to you, others would say, well, it's probably more so that when we're exposed to stimuli in the world around us, we only bring to our, you know, 
consciousness, our, our cognition, a very small percentage of that. But what we bring up into that, you know, fully conscious sort of state are the things that we deem to be most conducive to survival. So if we've really intended for something to occur, we're going to notice things that we previously didn't notice in our environment that are conducive to that happening. And that sort of speaks to what you're saying about the order. You know, you're basically ordering your neurology, uh, your neuroplasticity, and the way that affects your body far far more effectively for a particular outcome. Yeah. So, you know, that, that does make a lot of sense. Okay, so if it's nutrition at at the bottom layer that that um you can optimize everything else to come what's the best way of finding out the deficiencies there you know what what you're missing out on what you're not because you know okay if you have a balanced diet and all that you should have all the nutrients and but is that really true is there always stuff we're going to we're going to miss should we somehow have a very accurate analysis of of um of of our nutritional state before we can really embark on on doing something with that it's a great question because i'll approach it from the angle you brought up of if we just have a balanced diet everything should be covered now that's true in in some sense but it also becomes a very pithy throwaway for people within academia and within the nutrition industry because a lot of them will just say well just follow a balanced diet, you'll be fine. In other words, don't supplement, you know, don't worry too much about it. It's all going to work out. But the reality is that we have pretty clear evidence from, you know, research in New Zealand and most other countries that a large proportion of the population are not getting sufficient intakes of at least one essential vitamin and mineral, probably a lot more. Now, some people would come back and say, well, that's just because those people are eating poorly. But that's not our experience in working with athletes uh, at the high level and working with people with autoimmune conditions, you know, which is an area of research that I'm involved in, an area of clinical practice I do a lot of work in. And it's also been really shown to be evident in interesting cohorts of people that I was involved with working with uh, during the pandemic. So people who had experienced COVID, long COVID and COVID vaccination adverse events. Yeah. The interesting thing with that, the cohort that we were working with, was that they weren't your typical high-risk group. So it just happened right. to be that most of the people that we were working with who had experienced long COVID in particular and COVID vaccination adverse events. Can I just ask you one question, because you got me really fascinated here, um, just so we can um, get it out of the way. Is long COVID a thing? Yes, absolutely. Okay, all right. Just absolutely no doubt about it. Okay, Don't, didn't mean to interrupt. Carry on. <laughs> it's all good. I bet that clarification is important, right? Because there are a lot of people who say that it's it, it doesn't exist. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, but no, it absolutely does. It's very well. It's a well cover known. for other things. Yeah, whatever you, yeah. you might think. Yeah. And you know, th there could be other cofactors going on, but we certainly know that it's it's a real thing. It happens for a significant amount of people after COVID infection, and so and there's been a lot of research on it at this point because obviously, you know, a lot of us even though COVID is not my specialist area by any means, I was brought into that space as a lot of us as scientists were during the pandemic. Yeah. And so with this cohort anyway, it was really interesting because they weren't your typical risk group. They weren't people with metabolic disorder. They weren't uh, people who were old, you know, in, in any sort of sense. They were basically people who were relatively young. We're talking sort of 20s to 40s, pretty healthy, seemed pretty active. And the interesting thing is, if you just eyeballed 
what they're reading. So if they just jotted down what they're reading and you looked at it, you'd say, you know what, that looks pretty good. Most of them would be that type of person that you say, well, it looks pretty balanced. But when we ran it through a food analysis, it became very clear that every single one of those people were lacking certain essential vitamins and minerals. Okay. And for a lot of them, it wasn't just one or two, it was a, a large amount. And so we published a couple of, or I published a couple of case studies just showing that, you know, in some of these people who appeared to be relatively healthy pre, you know, uh, infection or pre vaccination, they might have been insufficient in almost all of the essential vitamins and minerals. And then it's not, it's almost like it's not until we get a big challenge that the body actually has to really respond in this way. And you see those most devastating effects of nutrient insufficiency because you can chug along for quite a while on a less than optimal diet and less than than optimal nutritional intakes. Okay. So, um, and that's possibly why they've ended up um, with the long COVID and, and, these comp- we call them complications, would we? Yeah, complications or adverse events, adverse effects. So, um, I yeah, what I... the pro- proportion of people in that situation are there, though? You know, in the real world, I'm I'm starting to think it's probably quite a quite a, quite a chunk, actually. I, I think so, and I mean, we can't say definitively that that's you know the the cause or that that is associated with the severity because we just don't have the data right now. But it's a very strong hypothesis that I have that those nutrient insufficiencies are leading to more severe COVID, uh, to you know those long COVID effects or more severe long COVID effects, and to vaccine adverse events. Now, th- there's a lot of evidence that suggests that because we have now a-, a lot of evidence that's been compiled to show that you know a lot of people who who do have the most severe effects of say COVID are deficient maybe in nutrients like vitamin D. We know that there are a lot of nutrients that can help. And so that suggests that maybe there was an insufficiency. Yeah, fortify. Yeah. Yeah. And and we also know that despite what what we often hear, there are a lot of people walking around who aren't getting enough essential vitamins and minerals. Yeah. You know, it it shocks people to hear that 40% of Kiwi males are not getting enough zinc from their diet. 40%. Okay. Yeah, and zinc is a key immunoregulator. It's involved in hundreds of enzymatic processes through the body. And, you know, one of its key functions is to help through those enzymes to support the proper immune regulation and the inflammatory cascade. And so it does make, you know, a lot of sense that if we're not getting enough of that and other things like, you know, up to 20% of Kiwis aren't getting enough vitamin A, another key immunoregulating nutrient. Vitamin D, you know, I would say, should I throw it out there? Maybe most yeah, just people throw it. Most, yeah. okay. are insufficient in, in vitamin D, which, as we know, is critically important for a lot of processes, including immune processes in the body. And people who are often immunocompromised or have autoimmune conditions or underlying autoimmune problems also are more likely to have polymorphisms or those um, sort of genetic issues that can mean they don't use vitamin D as effectively. Yeah. So even though they might, in some cases, not be deficient classically, they still may well be insufficient in their intakes um, because they require a higher higher intake amount. Right. Um, and, of course, with vitamin D, we've scared people off the sun too, haven't we? Um, 
Yeah, you know, everyone's slip, slop, slapping and sort of putting a, a protection coat on, but that's possibly denying um, a great source of vitamin C at a particular time of the year. I don't know. Um, just going back exactly. to, um, you know, those figures that you, you gave on, on um, nutrient deficiency uh, or the, um, I guess, the, the, the folk who have suffered in, in what you've been talking about, long COVID and, and other things. I, I mean, again, is there a psychological dimension to that? I mean, it, it's understanding the, the, the deficiency, deficiencies in nutrients is one thing, but uh, is that paired with, I don't know, some other things too, like what, anxiety or... Um, uh, you know, if we're talking about a link between, you know, psycho and physical, uh, I'm just wondering, because I've known some people have been really sick and all that, but they've, they've bounced back perfectly well. There's been no problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, we're always going to be to some degree a function of our psychosocial environment, you know, so what's happening around us, what media are we exposed to? Well, well okay. Let me put it this way. Sorry to jump in. If you were if you had fear generated in that process and were really scared of this whole thing and, you know, crapping yourself on a daily basis that you get this thing and, and, and your lungs are going to seize up and you're going to die a horrible death, um, <laughs> even if that doesn't happen, that's a certain mindset, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's not it's certainly not inconceivable that that's going to have a pretty big effect on someone. And, you know, there's a really interesting example for that as well, Paul, which is in the research on low back pain. And there's actually very little association between pathologies of the spine and chronic low back pain. Of course, if you hurt your spine, then it's going to acutely cause pain, right? Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about years down the track, there's very little association because we see people with pathologies of the spine who either have pain or don't. And we see people without those pathologies. In other words, the spine looks pretty good, but they either have pain or don't, right? So it's, it's really mixed. But what they have found is that some of those psychosocial factors do have a strong association with low back pain, like fear. And in particular, fear of pain or fear of... Of course. So it manifests. The fear manifests. Absolutely. So, you know, it, it's again good evidence that, of course, there's a link between the mind and the body and we need to be aware of it because, yes, it's it's a thing. Um, but it's also, again, bidirectional, because if we think about nutrient sufficiency in general, whether that be through eating enough total energy, getting enough protein, enough essential fats, or enough of those essential vitamins and minerals, there's obviously a very strong link between having sufficiency and better mood, better cognition anyway. So it might be that your fear or some of your maybe aberrant mental stuff is also going to be affected by nutrition. So it becomes, again, a well, bit of a cascade. So, so everything just goes in an upward spiral. It snowballs, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so how can people then, I mean, are there ways of, of having this sort of analysis? Is there a good reason to have, you know, a deep analysis done of your nutritional state and to kind, kind of, you know, work away then with that information, plug the gaps, and then sort of, I, I guess, in an effort to optimize then um, everything. Is, is that something that that should be a regular thing or, or a, every, I don't know how many years you'd want to do that? Um, yeah. I, I think first and foremost, people need to be more aware of, of just the concept in general. You know, just the concept that, hey, a lot of us are not eating that well anyway, but even if we are eating ostensibly well, maybe there are still some areas we want to fine tune. And I think then to take a, a more basic approach of 
trying to just hit a few key things each and every day, like to, to try and tactically change your behaviors around food so that you're eating a better diet overall. Um, but then sure, you know, getting a little bit of extra information, especially if it doesn't feel like it's working for you. And, you know, this is especially true for the, the you know number of people out there, a lot of people out there who don't feel optimized. They go to the doc and the doc says, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. It's like, yeah. hold on, but I know there's something that's not quite right because I feel like shit, you know, yeah. so then it's it's about looking a little bit deeper. And yes, then, you know, there are blood tests that can be done, although they're, they're not commonly sent off by the GPs. Um, but there are some key ones like getting vitamin D tested, like getting zinc tested. Obviously, there are a couple of B vitamins that could be tested very easily, like B12 and folate. But then, yes, you know, there is a very easy food analysis food analysis that can be done. And that's just all app-based nowadays. So someone can jump on an app. There's a particular app that myself and other practitioners use because it gives us really good vitamin and mineral analysis. But someone can just jump into that, maybe log all that they eat and drink for about three days. And then it becomes very clearly evident what that person is not yeah. taking in consistently. And it's interesting because, you know, I'll give you one one case example. I was working with a, 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 a I guess... We'd say middle-aged, uh, an athlete in their 40s who was just really struck by long COVID and just just stuck, you know, couldn't really do much, uh, was really struggling to get back into this. Is that an energy thing or like a chronic fatigue thing? Exactly, very similar. Okay. And, and that's why, um, you know, myself and a bunch of other experts were pulled in to do vids for the chronic fatigue and um, ME group on long COVID specifically, because it's obviously going to affect those people even more because it's basically the same type of complex to some degree. Right. But this client was, again, a a person who was relatively young, very active, eating well and supplementing. But when we ran through a food analysis, it became very clear that even with the supplements this person was taking, they weren't reaching sufficiency. And so when we shifted that around, the person recovered really quickly. Well, now yep. I'm not saying that it wasn't coincidence, it wasn't placebo, but you know, the writings on the wall, we see that type of turnaround so frequently that, you know, it, it's very plausible what we're doing. And it just makes sense, you know, if you're not getting the 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 end result is in the name, right? It's essential. If we're not getting essential vitamins and minerals, how on earth are we supposed to do anything? And everybody not- agrees on that too, right? I mean it's not as if there, there's a whole section of medicine that says no well, that's that's not right i mean that's why the word essential is there absolutely and the the only i guess controversy or debate around it is whether people are actually insufficient but when you look at the research from around the world it's very clear that a large proportion of people are not meeting meeting sufficiency and to me that's really worrying and that's why i call it either an epidemic or a pandemic even of nutrient insufficiency because again if if there are a large amount of people out there who are not getting enough of things that the body literally needs every day to be healthy, that's going to have a massive impact on our health system. Well, it is. Something's having a massive impact on it. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we've got a a, a system overall that is not geared towards really improving those health yeah. and happiness outcomes. And that's what we have to somehow get our heads around and 
change, right? I mean, if we're serious about dealing with things, affording things, and actually um, achieving anything in the future, we're going to have to understand that at a far greater level, aren't we? Absolutely. And, and I think we need to pay more than just lip service to the ideas of being preventative and pre- being preemptive for these things. And the, the, the way I often think about that, just, you know, within my own, within my own brain space is that we have quite a lot of latency or redundancy within, say, defense. You know, it's not like anyone's attacking us right now, but we have mm. some type of defense capability. And yet we don't tend to build that same latency into the health system so that in the future we're going to be protected against maybe, you know, these chronic diseases, these non-communicable diseases, or even these pandemic-style illnesses that are going to spring up from time to time. Because it's it's not like we're not going to have another flu pandemic at some point in the future. It's just when, it's not if. Yeah. Um, but we we typically don't gear up for those things because it's not palatable to to be spending money that's not being used right now. But my case would be a stitch in time saves nine. Yeah, and we noticed that during COVID, um, it's been commented on by many people that there, along with all the other messaging, what was lacking was just the, some basic stuff. Like you are in a better position to deal with this if you A, B, C, D, E all the obvious things, they were never, they, they weren't even mentioned, actually. Not only were they not mentioned, but legitimate and credible scientists who were saying, hold on, if you can be healthier at the outset by being nutrient sufficient, by getting enough sleep, by doing all those things that we know to be conducive to health, you're by nature going to be more resilient. It's likely that you'll have better outcomes. Those scientists who were saying that were shouted down. And they and we were had, called quacks. And we had six months, in our case, not to go through the whole thing, grind through it all again, but we had we had uh, some time to to get our, our, our SHIT together. You know, we had six months to to get a bit, even a bit more healthy, but we didn't do it. No, we didn't do it. And, you know, it's, I, I understand it's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, it is. And. Well, I, well I, actually, is it? Because if you hit hit the space with um, flood the zone with the messaging, that's been proved to work. You can uh, look what happened with smoking. Yeah, you know, okay, you're <laughs> looking for a faster result than you know, changing habits over twenty or thirty years. But it is possible to message in a way that gets people's attention, and if it lessens the fear, there's another motivation. Um, I get that it, that it would have been an unprecedented thing to do, but. It, surely was possible to do that, along with everything else. I, I like that you're saying that, Paul, because I guess I become cynical, you know, after having worked in this space for 26 years now and seeing a lot of things just not taking root. I think you're right, though. You know, if people... The, the thing is, the messaging needs to be clear enough and simple enough to be applied. Yeah. And unfortunately, expecting people to be food scientists and be going through food labels and trying to determine what the quality of the food is based on that, or the ridiculous sort of star system that we have, which people don't understand. Yeah. Those things aren't really that impactful because people just don't get it. And, you know, you and I know that people have limited time, they've got limited brain space, they've got limited energy, and they've got limited money. Yeah. And and this is exacerbating the problem now because the, the last, for example, food and nutrition survey was done in 2009 in New Zealand. 
And this is where we get a lot of that data showing that, for example, nearly half of men are not getting enough zinc. I would highly suspect, and based on evidence that we see from overseas, this is supported, but I'd highly suspect that it's worse now because I see it day in, day out, clients struggling to eat the way they did even five years ago. Vegetables are more expensive. Meat is you know, yep. far more expensive. Eggs are expensive. Nutrient-dense foods in general are expensive. And so I, I think that the situation's getting worse uh, and people are really confused about what to do. Well, it was just uh, interesting. I was in Auckland at the time, Wellington now, but when the um, when things went back to normal, um, the queues outside the drive-throughs of the fast food um, brands were just epic, all the way down the street. You know, um, people just flocked to there. In fact, just down the road from me is KFC. Around the corner is is uh, Macca's, and every time I go past, those drive-throughs are always full. Yeah, and you know, again, it's a from my point of view, it's a really tough proposition because I, I can, to some degree, understand why people default to what is easy and you know what drives that sort of short term dopamine hit. Yeah, because people in general, I, I think, are becoming less happy. You know, we, we've got mental right. health issues that are just escalating drastically uh, with cost of living crisis. It just compounds that. And if you've got people who are working their butts off to make very little money and the only real, you know, enjoyment they have is to have a couple of beers and, a, and some Maccas at night, I mean, who, who are we to keep that from? Them? To we get in the way. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah exactly. We well, kind of need to change. Yeah, okay. We need to change the entire environment so that it's more conducive overall to that pursuit of health and happiness, I think. Or is it just laziness, lazy thinking? Well, there's part of that. You know, I'm certainly not one of these um, people who, who says it's all about environment and we're all sort of victims of that. I, I think the the two are true, though. If we're putting people in positions where it's very difficult to change, then that is a societal issue. But on an individual level, absolutely, there's part of it is taking responsibility. You know, anyone um, like myself who has serious health condition knows that at some point you need to realise that this is my body doing things to itself and I need to stand up and be accountable for it. So it's really that extreme ownership idea. And I'm, I'm a big advocate of that. So in many respects, I guess I'm a bit of a contradiction because I'm kind of a libertarian socialist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The two extremes uh, come together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, okay. left, the left will eat itself. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, um, that's a really interesting chat. Is there anything that, that we've missed or that, you want to say that you haven't said um, anything that we should know about um, before we um, wind up talking this morning? I, I think the main thing is for people not to be too freaked out about nutrition. You know, I think when people get really, like you were saying before about fear, you know, when people get really yeah. scared about things, it, it doesn't drive the best path for them. So I think, you know, rather than overcomplicating and people getting really scared about various things or being fearful of food it's really about doing very simple things day in day out and so one thing i talk about a lot because it's a nice entry point is just what i call a modular approach to nutrition and all that means is thinking about your meals in a modular way prioritizing protein you know a couple of palm sizes of a good protein food then if possible three fist sizes of veggies 
a little bit of extra good healthy fat, you know, maybe one to two thumb sizes. And then carbs are optional. They're additional depending on how hungry you are and how active you are. Even that might sound a little bit too complicated for people, but at least it's a very easy way to approach it. Um, and if, if people just search for that modular approach to meal planning, um, they'll find some good info on it because it's a very basic way to start to eat better. If um, any of our curious audience, because they are, they're very curious, um, like what they've heard, want to find out more, um, are you open to be contacted? Absolutely. That's why I'm in the space to help people, mate. Yeah. So, well, I just have to ask because sometimes, yeah. I don't know, you might have been maxing out on, on all your time and yeah, no, I, I am, but I still make time for people. Yeah. So, yeah, people can find me at the Holistic Performance Institute, which is just holisticperformance.institute, or um, just, you know, search my name or go to cliffharvey.com and you'll find all the things that I do. Okay, Dr. Cliff Harvey, author, clinician, researcher, speaker, and there's a whole lot more to add to that, but uh, I'll be here for, for the whole hour probably. That's been a really interesting um, chat with you, Cliff. Thanks for coming on RCR and giving your knowledge to us like that. It's fantastic. Cool. Thanks, Paul. I really enjoyed it, mate. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio. Thank you for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to or dislike what you're listening to, either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so connect with us today.